if you would turn to Zechariah chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. As you turn there, I wonder, did you have a rough night's rest? Any, any night this week you have trouble sleeping? If so, Zechariah is the patron saint for you. Because on February the 15th, 519 B.C., he had a long night. We started that last week. He had a night where he receives eight visions from the Lord. And these visions are out there. There's something else. And he is to take these visions and to preach them to the people of God. The people of God who are sitting in crumbled ruins. In what was once a magnificent city, now rubble. They're trying to rebuild this city, but the work is stalled. Famine, terrible oppression has faced them at every side. The pagan nations pressing in upon them. They're no longer a dependent nation, a divinic dynasty. Now they're a puny vassal providence of the mighty empire of the Medes and King Darius. They're a pathetic sight. Pathetic. They're impoverished. They're discouraged. Have they lost God's favor forever? Discouraged? Wondering? Hurting? Let's hear Zechariah chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? He said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run. Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. 
Well, as we consider this passage this morning, I wonder as we began, did you notice it is an unexpected message that Zechariah receives? So remember last week, God has promised that he would rebuild Jerusalem, and uh, he is going to restore the prosperity of the people. You may remember verse 16 of chapter 1 says, um, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to, to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Well, that measuring line now becomes the focal point in this third vision that Zechariah receives. And it's picked up here in chapter 2, verse 1. There is this man, this young man. He has a, this measuring line in his hand, and he's gone out. He's going to measure Jerusalem, isn't he? The length and breadth. Uh, but as he goes to measure Jerusalem, this interpreting angel that's been talking to Zechariah, uh, he is approached by another angel, of other angelic figure. And notice that this second angel, he's going to speak for the, through the rest of this chapter in first person as the Lord himself. So he's not merely an angel, but once again, just as we saw last week, this is the angel of the Lord. He is identified with God, yet he is distinct from God. He is, as we saw last week, the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Christ before he comes and is born of a Virgin Mary. This is the Lord Jesus. And he commissions this angel. Verse 4, run ahead, run, catch this young man, catch up to this young man. Because this man who is measuring the city, his approach to measuring and evaluating the dimensions of this city, they're all wrong. Okay? They're all wrong. Well, this young man, we might even ask this question starting. Who's this young man? Uh, he, we're not particularly told, but given what we would have already seen and what's been promised, this is the inhabitants of Judah. They've been promised the, the temple will be built, the, the, the kingdom will be built, the uh, prosperity will return. And so here you can imagine the people of Judah caught up in that enthusiasm of a, a restored city that God has promised them, and they're eager to measure the city. They're so eager, they've gone ahead, and the angel has to run and catch up with them. But he must catch up, because the angel of the Lord wants God's people to understand that the, their perceptions, they're based on wrong measurements. The measuring rod is this emblem of all their conventional wisdom, all their human expectation. So what they are expecting is not the way it really is going to be. The Lord wants us to see that his promises are far greater than any uh, conventional thinking or human measurement that we could ever grasp. His promises are far more. And this is a vital lesson for us because God promises more. His promises are more expansive than what we could 
ever imagine or think, Ephesians tells us. Beyond anything that we could comprehend, his promises are so much greater. His promises defy conventional wisdom. Have you ever heard of Cliff Young? Cliff Young was a marvelous individual. He was a sheep farmer in Australia. And at the age of 61 years old, Cliff Young raced in an ultramarathon from Sydney, Australia to Melbourne in 1983. An ultramarathon for you like me, who do not run, 545 miles. Typically, it would last seven days. The athletes would run for 18 hours and sleep on the side of the road for six hours. Well, Cliff Young, the 61-year-old farmer, he lines up at the starting line, and he stands out. He stands out not just because he's 30 years older than everyone else in the race. He stands out not just because he has, does not have the latest gear and the highest tech shoes and he doesn't have sponsors covering his clothing. No, this old sheep farmer wore his overalls and his work boots. And he had galoshes over his work boots, you know, in case it rained. And he did not have his teeth in his mouth because, you know, they jiggle when you run. He stood out tremendously. And actually, he didn't actually run. Some of you can empathize with this. He more shuffled along. As he went, he barely lifted his feet. And so when the starter's pistol goes off, Cliff Young is left in the dust way back. But while others slept their six hours on the roadside, he kept shuffling along without break. Maybe they didn't tell him he, need, he was supposed to sleep for six hours. I don't know. Whatever it is, actually, he was quite used to it. On his farm, when bad weather was coming, he would oftentimes, this 2,000-acre uh, farm, he would run down his sheep before the bad weather would get there. Sometimes he would run three straight days rounding all of his animals in, in his gum boots. He never stops. While others slept, Cliff Young shuffled along. Eventually, last night, he passed the opposition. For five straight days, he ran. And he not only won the race, he beat the ultramarathon record by two whole days. Conventional wisdom says, work boots. Conventional wisdom says, overalls. Conventional wisdom says, shuffling along like that. Conventional wisdom says, no rest. There's no way he will win this race. He probably won't even finish this race. But conventional wisdom does not always have the best metrics, does it? This young man with the measuring line, he is a reminder. 
He's a reminder to judge God's kingdom. Do not judge it according to conventional wisdom. Because God's people here, they expected a city much like what has already been taken from them. They're expecting a, a, a walled fortress. They're expecting a bricks and mortar. But what they're looking for is not what God has promised. It's not the conventional thinking. is not going to lead them to what God has promised. His kingdom, it turns out, is marked by two important things. You see those in verses 4 and 5. Notice verse 4. The, this kingdom, the kingdom that he has promised, is going to be vastly populated. It's going to be so crowded. Oh, you're not, it's going to be so packed, you're not even going to be able to put a wall around it. Inhabitants, livestock, they're all coming in. Verse 11 says that it's a city that encompasses the nations. They're all going to be there. So this new Jerusalem, the, the, the kingdom of God that's been promised, embraces citizens from every tribe and language of people. It, there will neither be Greek nor sla Jew nor slave nor free nor circumcised, nor uncircumcised, nor barbarian, nor Scythian, because Christ is going to be all and going to be in all. This is going to be a multitude that no man can number that inhabits this city. And this city, is, we're told, is going to be secure. Now you may say, conventional wisdom says if we need security, we need a wall. There's no wall. How are they going to be secure? Verse 5. I will be a wall of fire all around. I will be the glory in your midst. God himself is going to protect this city. The message of the angel of the Lord is that God's kingdom is a countless multitude and it doesn't need human walls because God himself will protect it. Now we might find the temptation of going the route of this young man with the measuring line here. With the, we measure God's kingdom just with uh, human standards and human metrics, right? Like Cliff Young. Oh, you need the latest gear, Cliff Young. We might do that same thing. Perhaps you feel like we'll know if it's really God's kingdom based on how big and how rich and how powerful it is. The true measure of God's kingdom is not a scale of wealth and power and appearance. What is it? It's the presence of the glory of the living God that he dwells in their midst. That's the marker here. That's what we, uh, we need if we're to be a church that reaches the nation, a church that has a, a heart and passion for the nations, that sees the nations come in and join the people of God. It has to have the presence of the glory of God in her midst. The world says, you need our standards, you need our tools, you'll never achieve, you'll never Succeed. Meanwhile, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it is not with excellency of speech that he came. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he actually says, it's the foolishness of what is being preached. That is what God uses to save those who believe. In fact, their own wisdom, their own conventional thinking will never save them. It's the foolishness of this message that is preached. That's what God uses. The presence of the glory dwelling among us. That's the picture of God's people, God's gathered people. You, you may remember Moses. Remember Moses in Exodus 33:18, where Moses cries out to God and says, Lord, show me thy glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that's the cry of revival. When every believer desires to know and see more of the glory of God, that is what revival is. But it can be tough. It can be tough, friends, because this involves us to actually trust the Lord. It means trusting the Lord with our private lives. When we feel completely unprepared and, and, and you feel completely like you're showing up for an ultra marathon in work boots. My call is don't forget the promises of God. They are not what we were expecting at the beginning. Do not lose fact. Do not try to manufacture some, uh, some self-made alternatives toward, instead of trusting God because self-made alternatives will produce self-made security and self-made peace and self-made comfort and all of those things are going to go away. You need the security and the peace and the comfort that only God provides. Look to the promises of God. Trust in God and do what? Press on. Run the race. Cross the line. Win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This means, church friends, he's with you. He's with you. It means he will keep you. He will keep you. Think, how many times has God kept his word? Every time. How many times in your life do you know, oh, he kept his word. I would have drifted and I would have made a shipwreck of this whole thing. But he kept his word. Think how many times he's done it again and again and know that it's not just in the past. He will do that continuously, ongoing. See, think about what God has done. What lengths has God gone to to save you from your sin and the wretched state that you were born into? What, what lengths did God go to to do that? And in light of the cross, Aren't God's promises solid and real and secure? They're more real than anything that we could ever produce or anything that our minds could ever come up with. So what should we do? We trust God. We trust God with our lives right here, right now. We trust God with our future. Why? Because we understand it? No. We can understand it. We, we can grapple with it. And we can seek to know more of him in it. But conventional wisdom will never fully understand. 
It's an unexpected message that we see here. But there's also this urgent message. Did you see verses 6 to 9? The Lord here, he continues to speak. Notice verses 6 and 9. So this time, though, he's addressing the people of God. And, and, and it's a word of summons. It's a word of urgency. Do you hear the urgency here in verses 6 and 7? Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So God's people, there's some, aren't they? They're still in exile. Those people, God's people, must leave Babylon. They must leave. They must go. They must depart and get to the new Zion that God is building. So they're in Babylon. Babylon is, is significant. as It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. It goes all the way through to Revelation 18 where it stands with Rome and the, the pagan world. and the, It's the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. The, the pagan world and their determination to make war and hostility against God. Uh, oh, a world in which God has already pronounced judgment upon. And God says, leave Babylon. Go to Jerusalem. Break solidarity with the world, the world that rejects God, the, the world that, that hates my people. You flee to God. You flee to God himself for mercy and protection. You do not want to stay in Babylon. It's like Pilgrim in Bunyan's story, right? He flees the, the city of destruction. He makes his way to the celestial city. He runs there. This is like in the Bible, right? Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. That's what this is like. He says, you cast your lot with God and his people. You set out resolutely. Don't turn back. You set out for the new Jerusalem, the city of God. That's where you need to be. Now, I fear some of us, even today, some of us, you're still living in the city of, of destruction. You're still there. You're still in old Babylon. God has this urgent word for you. Up. Flee. Run. Escape to Zion. Head out, run to this celestial city. The judgment of God is coming. And the only safe place to be is when you join with the people of God. You become a nation. You become a new society of God that he is building through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other hiding place from this judgment. Only Christ. Only Christ. No other hiding place. Well, you, Come, join this community of exiles who we've all fled from Babylon. It's a, it's a society of, of prodigals who have come to our senses and returned to the Father's home. That's what this call is. We've come home at last. Because you cannot be at home in this world and not subject to the judgment that God is going to bring upon this world. And you cannot be at home with the church of Jesus Christ through faith and be more secure. 
It's the only options. It's the only options. That's an urgent message. And if that's you and you're not a believer today, would you hear that urgent message? Flee. Flee the wrath that is to come. Run to Christ. Join this happy band. Do you notice in verses 8 and 9 this message of comfort? It's a message of comfort. The angel of the Lord literally tells us that the glory, this is what it says, the glory sent him to the nations who plundered Judah. So he's coming, he's pronouncing this word of judgment over them. The, the, the Lord of hosts is sent to the nations. Well, who can send God anywhere? Who can send God anywhere? This is a reference to God the Father. So if your translation's like mine, it says, by the glory, small g, I think it should be a capital G. Because I think it's referencing God, God the Father. Back in verse 5, I will be the glory in your midst. That's what God says. Uh, here's a glimpse, and ultimately this truth is, is ultimately unveiled and, and becomes so much clearer in the light of Jesus Christ's coming. When he's incarnate, he comes to earth. But friends, here we see, don't we? We see the essential unity and the diversity that exists in the Trinity. Do you see this? That God the Father, the glory in this passage, will send the angel of the Lord, a.k.a. the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, to judge the nations. That he will judge, that that judgment is coming. And what's the reason, it says in verse 8? Because the church, the, the new Jerusalem, the city of God is what? The apple of his eye. So, to lift your finger against the church is like, poking God in the eye. And you know what? There will be consequences. There will be consequences. Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. You, you may remember, remember Saul on the road to uh, uh, Damascus? What's he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Remember that? Saul had been persecuting the church of Christ. It was the same thing as persecuting the head of the church. And can I say, you can't be in a more dangerous place than this. It, those that live at peace in Babylon, it's the most dangerous place that you can imagine. To live at, at ease with the citizens of this world, a world that is in rebellion against King Jesus, the angel of the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord of hosts, Je Jehovah Jesus, the one who came, the one who bled, the one who died, the one who rescued sinful men and women like you and me, uh, the one who is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. He will bring, won't he, the wrath of the glory, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, it's the wrath of the Lamb on all those who do not trust in Christ. There's no more dangerous place for you than this. It's the most dangerous place imaginable. 
but the assembly of the blood-bought church of Christ? There's safety there. We're protected from that judgment because Christ has already taken it. He's already borne it away. We're told here, God's people, they're the apple of his eye. That's an odd phrase. We might not be familiar with that as maybe generations past. He delights to fill his vision with the fresh sight of his bride, the church. He dotes on you like a bridegroom dotes on his beloved. So we just ask the question, do you belong to this group? Do you belong to his people whom he loves? Are you a citizen of heaven? Are you still living with the daughters of Babylon? Are you a Christian? That's what it's asking. Are you a Christian? Do you know my Savior? Do, do you know the perfect rescuer that Scott talked of earlier? Do you know him? Are you the apple of his eye? There's no more urgent question that we could ever ask this morning than that. And if you answer that in the affirmative, then there is sweet, blessed security for you. But if you answer that in the negative, you say, no, I don't think I am. I don't think I'm the apple of his eye. I don't think I'm a, in with the people of God. I don't think I'm a Christian. I think I am at home in Babylon, in this world. Can I tell you, you face a certain and terrible judgment. Lastly, notice the word of praise, this, this message of praise in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. So it's not the daughter of, of, of Babylon anymore. O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. God himself will dwell in the midst of his people. Again, verse 11, it's, it's repeated, okay? It's emphasized. It's, it's underlined here. You say, I don't like to write my Bible. God did this one for you. <laughs> it's there in 10, it's there in 11. You, it's emphasized for you, all right? This is important business that's being dealt with. God says, I will come. I'll dwell in your midst. And between those two promises, look there in 11b, this announcement, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. And they shall be my people. So a day is coming when these pagan nations, the, the, the ones that are surrounding them, the ones that are oppressing them, uh, that they will turn and instead of being the enemies of God, the enemies of God's kingdom, they're going to turn and become part of God's kingdom. And here's the key. What's the transformation that takes place? What, what is necessary? How does all that happen? It has to do with God dwelling in their midst. When God comes and, and dwells among the nations, uh, among the, uh, the, uh, his people, the nations then are going to become the fellow citizens of the new Jerusalem, this new Zion. 
And that day dawned, friends, not with brick and stone and the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem, a temple that was at best a foreshadow to the fulfillment of this, but God would come and he would dwell and he would live with his people and he would not live behind a curtain, but in flesh and in blood and the man, Jesus Christ. And he comes and, and when he comes, it is God who comes and he takes on flesh and he dwells among us in no possible human measurement could ever get it. They they did not grasp it. They were measuring it all wrong. The, their human uh, uh, mentalities, their, their processes were all short, and they did not get it. They did not get that the true temple was the flesh of Jesus Christ, and that it would be torn down on the cross. Remember, they, they freaked out when he said, I'll destroy this temple and three days build it back again. They didn't know how to deal with it. They missed it because they were measuring with these human measuring lines. But Christ in his flesh, he bears the wrath. He bears the punishment of God. Christ in his flesh rises the third day in victory. A victory that sinners like you and me, that now we, we, we can gain citizenship into God's kingdom, the new Jerusalem, because now those gates are wide open. They're thrown open, and we can go in only through the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that, hey, once we were not the people, but now we are the people of God. Once we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, once we were strangers to the covenant of promise. But now, now we who were far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2 says, now we are no longer aliens and strangers. We are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. This is what God has done for us by coming and dwelling near us. The nations are brought in. We're brought in and become citizen members in the kingdom of God. So I wonder, how do you respond to that truth? How do you respond to it? That, how do you respond to what God did? That he dwelled among us. How do you respond to the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin? How do you, how do you respond to the fact that he grew, he was despised, he was respected? rejected by men. What do you do? How do you respond to Christ who was crucified? That he bled, he died for you. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to a stone being rolled away? The Son of Man ascending into glory, preparing a place for you. How do you respond to that? What will you do? You think all that Christ has done for you, all, all that God has done for you in Christ. How do you respond to that? This passage says two things we should do. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I will come and dwell in your midst. This is a proper response for all that God has done for us. The people of God sing his praises. It's not just random things that we sing. 
we sing about what God has done for us in Christ. In verse 13, you say, okay, I got the singing part. I'm, I'm good with that. I love to sing. Verse 13 gets a little more difficult maybe for a good room of Baptist. Be silent. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So what will you do? How do you respond? When God comes to dwell among us, when Christ rescues us in the gospel, what do we do? We sing. And then we bow down in silent wonder and awe. Both of those things. You tremble and you rejoice. You quake and you celebrate. <laughs> when you think of what the gospel has done, when, when the gospel is embraced in the heart, both of these things are produced, friends. It makes us sing and it takes away our breath so we can't sing anymore. Do you know the reality of the glory of the gospel of grace. Then let us sing. And let us respond with silence before the Lord, knowing that he is God. And worshiping all that he has done for us in Christ. This is why in our call to worship Hebrews 12, we worship God with reverence and in awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. So, in our prayer now, I'm just going to ask you to do that. Would you quietly just pray where you are in your heart? And there's all, I, I'm not even going to tell you what to pray, right? Because there's all kinds of ways that it may be, I need to flee from Babylon. Do that now. It may be, I treasure what my Savior has done for me. Savor it and cherish it and worship him. Let's quietly pray to the Lord, shall we?